Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, as it has been said several times, it is good to have you here with us uh, this Sunday morning to worship with us, to set under uh, the preached word of God. Uh, happy Father's Day again to all the dads in the room. Uh, my name is Eddie. For those of you who do not know me, I am one of the members here at Pillar Jacksonville. And again, it is always a pleasure to have you here with us to sit and worship the Lord. So I assume that all the fathers in the room uh, at some point in the next 24 hours or in the last 24 hours have been properly pampered according to your uh, pampering of preference, uh, whether that may be. <laughs> uh, hopefully um, you have received everything that you deign to receive, receive today. I understand that is a shameful uh, bias on my side, but I am being genuine, and I hope you guys do receive some pampering today, because I want some pampering today. Um. <laughs> um, so as I begin to prepare the message to preach this morning, I went through and I was trying to figure out what is the central theme through the passage this morning. And I struggled to understand one simple thing, thing and the simple thing was why Israel did not obey God. And as I dug into it and I thought about it and I thought about it and I, I prayed about it, I reached out to some of the elders and some of the other people. I want to pose to you this morning the question that I believe was posed to me. And that question is this. Why do you offer partial obedience? Have you resolved that your current level of obedience is sufficient? Reconciling within yourself that somehow that the, our current level of obedience that we give to God is enough, that he is okay with us being less than obedient to what he has said. Do you consider that your present sacrifice of time, talents, tithes, and treasures are appropriate and therefore satisfactory? These are some of the things that I was convicted of as I prepared the sermon and started to write down notes and walk through the passage. But I'll give you just a minute to consider how that affects you. I would assume that if you're like me, that right now it's a little warm in the seat that you're sitting in. But I'll give you a moment to think about it. Maybe you are not adequately convicted as I was when I came into this passage. So I'll give you another thing. And the other theme is, are you confident that God is trustworthy? Are you confident that he is trustworthy? It would almost seem like these are the primary themes throughout the message. But honestly, we haven't even got to that point yet. These are the things as going into the preparation that came to me that the Holy Spirit convicted me of. Do you genuinely believe in what God says, that he is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he will do? Has there ever been a time in your life and this is a question I ask myself, when I deem that God or God's word could not be trusted. Was there a time that I can look back on when I read God's word or prayed to God and somehow God did not, God's word or God's answer did not ring true? I could not think of one. I wanted to come up with a story to kind of illustrate this point. I didn't because I couldn't remember all the details. But the thing that I came up with 
is there is not one time that I can remember where I cried out to God, read his word, and it was not true. But the problem is, regardless of how we argue these points, the first question is ultimately rooted in the answer to the second. However, if you say yes to the second question, then you will be convicted by the first. Because if I don't trust God, then I won't fully obey him. In other words, the final question before we get into the passage I'll present to you is this. Do your actions substance for your confession? If you've got your Bibles with you this morning, we will be reading from Judges chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat uh, in your close proximity of what Mike said this morning. Uh, feel free to use that Bible uh, and to take it with you when you leave. So starting in Judges chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I, likewise, will go up with you into the territory allotted to you. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found a Donai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negeb, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kireth Arba. And they defeated Shishai and Ahiman and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants, the inhabitants of Deber. The name of Deber was formerly Kireth Sefer. And Caleb said, He who strikes Kireth Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Canaanite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of plains into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Geb near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Pethath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Horma. Judah also captured Gaza with this territory and Ashkelon with this territory and Ekron with this territory. And the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country. 
but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem, for the Jebusites have lived with the people of, Jeru of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The people of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the, inhabit the inhabitants of Bethshean or, or the villages of Tanak or its villages or the inhabitants of Gore and its villages or the inhabitants of Ibrium and its villages or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. So the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulon did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Naalol. So the inhabitants lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alab or of Agzip or of Helba or of Aphek or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not draw out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, so they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Herez and in Ajalon and in Shealbum, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah and upward. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we look into your perfect word. We reflect on your instructions to us, Father, and we pray that you would give us the desire and the ability to obey you completely. As we walk through the passage this morning, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds, that you would give us a heart of flesh that can be molded and shaped by your word, Father. And we pray that we will leave here, Father, better than we came, Father. We pray that your spirit will move mightily among us as we preach and receive your word, Father. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Not a very long chapter. One of the things that I found out about the Judges 1, uh, listening to the previous sermon, uh, last week Brian gave us an a overview of the book of Judges and Ruth and highlighting what we came to understand was a continued downward spiral that Israel would take throughout this time. And as we look back to the scripture from this morning in Numbers 33, that provides us with the instruction that God first gave to the Israelites, then 
fast forward to the book of Joshua where God reiterated and reaffirmed the covenant with the people to which the people said, yes, we will follow the Lord. The question Joshua posed him directly was, who will you serve? They said, we will serve the Lord. To which Joshua responded, you cannot serve the Lord, for the Lord is holy. I say that not to throw us off, but to set the stage of where we've come from to give us a why um, that you'll see here in a moment, to give us a, well, how do they still know? And then to kind of push us in a direction that we're going to go over the next couple of weeks as we go through continuing the book of Judges, but also into the book of Ruth. By the time we get to the book of Judges, Joshua has died. But before that, God has already, God has not established a replacement for Joshua, but through Joshua, God has set a foothold in the promised land for the Israelites. So now, it is on them to go in and take possession of that land that God has mentioned to them back in Numbers 33. This morning's primary emphasis is obeying God requires placing our trust in his sovereignty and ability to keep his promises. I'll say that again. Obeying God requires placing our trust in his sovereignty and ability to keep his promises. There are two contrasting arguments uh, for the message this morning. The first one is trust in God initiates a response of obedience. Trust in God initiates a response of obedience. And the second, a lack of confidence results in disobedience. See, when we truly, truly see God as trustworthy in our lives, our inclination is to obey him, or at least that should be our inclination. However, we know from our, our sin, sinful nature that we are in direct rebellion of God and of all the things that God uh, called us to do. The correct mindset is that God knows all things and seeks our good in all things, but it's that it is God that is in charge. The verse that immediately comes to mind when I, when I think of this is uh, Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. And when we think about that, and we focus on that as our guiding light, using the Bible to direct us, we should know that God is for us, God is good, and if we trust in God, that we will be able to do what we are supposed to do, and God will be faithful to answer it, because that's what the Bible says. Again, our first argument is trust in God initiates a response of obedience. As we get into verse 1 of Judges, we see that Israel starts off on the right foot, understanding where they came from, and just to kind of to give us a little more context, when we look at the of Judges, especially in chapter 1. Chapter 1 really is a 30,000-foot view of what is going on. It's a summation of what is going on, is about to happen, that is more 
expanded upon in the upcoming chapters. It is almost like when you watch the pilot for a new movie uh, or a new miniseries, they'll give you a, a plot and then you'll get a to be continued. This is kind of what we're looking at with Judges 1. So what we're going to run into, what I believe you were running into, or some of the same things I ran into before I went forward was, well, why are the Israelites doing what they're doing? Uh, to which I will point you back again to last week's message where Brian said, if you get to a point and you're confused, keep reading. I want to draw your attention to four crucial things that I believe will carry us through the first uh, 20 verses um, as we go through it this morning. Again, we say there is a contrast um, from the beginning of that first half of the passage to the second half of the passage. And four things that we need to see are this. One, Israel inquired of the Lord. Two, the Lord said. Three, Judah went. And four, the Lord gave. And I'll repeat those for you again if you're taking notes. Israel required, inquired of the Lord. The Lord said, Judah went, and the Lord gave. This is a pretty straightforward response. In verses 1 through 2, Israel goes to the Lord, and they ask, who will go up to fight first for us against the Canaanites? So again, remember, Joshua is now dead, and the, there is no new central ruler over Israel. At this time, the nations, the tribes, have been left to their own idea of what it means to do the right thing. Um, we can all that relate to what it means to do what is right in our own eyes, something that we will hear several times throughout uh, this book. And we know sometimes when we do what's right to us, it does not always work out well for us. Uh, the Bible says there's a way seems right to a man, but ends in destruction. We know far too often that sometimes our well-laid plans uh, are not executed and do not end well as we believe they should. But the thing I want you to see is that after they inquired, it said, the Lord said in verse 2, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. That is a confirmation. And we think, well, why would they believe now what God is saying? Well, for that, we have to go back to what just happened. Just conquered the city of Jericho. God gave them victory over Jericho. Now, I know I hesitated on this one, but I know you guys all remember the Battle of Jericho, right? The song. The, I know. No, I, wish I, I wish I had the preschoolers in here because the preschoolers remember the song. Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down, right? We know God is faithful. And when God brought down, thank you, when God brought down the walls of Jericho, how did he bring down the wall? There was not, the men did not strike the walls with a sword. It was vocal. God brought it down with sound. Now, from time to time, we sit in here and we've heard the noise from the kids. There's a random scream that sends a chill up your spine. I can assume 
that somehow God had that same effect on the city of Jericho when he had the Israelites march around seven times, scream, and blow the horns. In any case, the city and the walls came tumbling down. And this is when they should look back and see how good God was. But is that not how we tend to look at what is going on? We look at our present circumstances and we forget that time when God, that time how God, and we forget to remember that God was good and God continues to be good because we focus on, well, God, what have you done for me lately? That is a problem. Fortunately, Judah had a different response. In verse 4, it said, Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. Judah heard that Judah and Israel inquired of the Lord. The Lord said, and Judah acted on what God said. When you read God's word, the question is, do you act on it? When God says, thou shalt or thou shalt not, do you act on it? Do you take it to heart? The verse that comes to mind to me when I think about this is James 1.22. But be doers of the word and not just hearers, only deceiving yourselves. We say, how does that apply into what we're talking about this morning? Well, it doesn't matter how much of the Bible I read if I do not determine in my heart that I'm going to follow what it says. It does not deter, it does not matter if I pray to God and seek an answer, but when he answers, I fail to respond. That we will see is a problem as we move forward. However, our problem is when we ask God a question and we don't like the answer, we assume that he hasn't answered our question at all. Even when the Bible openly says, the Lord says, or the word of God says, somehow, if we don't like it, we determine that we are not going to trust it. Personally, I don't like the idea of a monthly electric bill. I don't. I don't like the idea of having to pay a monthly electric bill. Thank you. However, however, I know that there is a relationship between me paying my bill and me having lights in my house. There has been this relationship of seemingly trust between me and Jones Onslow that says, if you pay your bill, then you will have lights in your house. Um, so far, I paid my bill and I still have lights. At least they were on this morning when I left. So I'm going to assume that that trust relationship stands. And if I pay my bill again this month, I will have lights next month. That's normally how trust goes. Um, but far too often, we do not trust in what God says. But we don't want to stop just in verse 4. If we go down to verse 8, it says, And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword. Verse 9, And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country and in the Geb. Verse 10, and Judah went against the, he the Canaanites uh, who lived in Hebron. From there, he went against uh, the inhabitants of Deber. So Judah didn't just stop. Judah understood the, what was told to him in Numbers 33, 
you will go out and inhabit the land and drive out those inhabitants. You will take possession of the land and drive them out. He understood what Joshua said when he had them reaffirm their covenant to what Moses told Joshua and what Joshua told the people, which came from the Lord. Judah also understood that when God said back up in verse 2, Behold, I have given the land into your hand, Judah trusted the Lord. Confidence. How confident are we in what God tells us? Whether we trust God or not will depend on how we respond to his word. The other thing that I want to point our attention to, we don't want to leave out Caleb. I, I find Caleb fascinating because this is the second time we see Caleb, and Caleb, Caleb is, his, his, his overall confidence and faith in the Lord is outstanding. We remember Caleb from back when they initially, when Moses sent out the 12 spies into the land to scout out the land. Of all the 12 spies, only two men came back and gave a favorable response, Joshua and Caleb. And here is Caleb again, and Caleb is saying, Gird up yourself, let's go. The Lord has given us a land. And what he says in verse 12, and Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. Not so much into what he said, but his faith in going ahead and doing what God told him. But if we fast forward to verse 20, we also see that Caleb was given. Hebron. This was his allotment that Moses had provided for him. And it says, he drove out, it said, and Caleb, and Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses has said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. Now, again, if we remember back, the sons of Anak were the giants that they saw in the city, those that Caleb said, no problem, we can subdue them, we can take the city, God has given us the city, he has given us the land, Let's go in and take it. We don't care how big the giants are. We don't care all the problems that we're facing. God has said we need to move. It is no wonder that the pairing of Joshua and Judah and Caleb uh, is so good and such a good example for us. But I wonder how often do we see the big problem when God says go and we see the problem and we turn around from what God has told us to do. Far too many times uh, in my own life I can say that I've known that I'm supposed to go in a certain direction, and I've known that God has given me clear guidance. Uh, however, it looked harder than what I wanted to partake at the time, and I turned around, and each time I can tell you, I, either not for my own good, or God brought me right back and said, try again. Hmm. Try again. You know, the, as, as we look at the example, again, from where Caleb, where Judah started with the absence of Joshua and look to where they're going. It seems like everything is working out right. Uh, kind of like us, we'll start in a very good place and everything will be working out right and then all of a sudden something will happen and what we will do is we'll get discouraged and because of our discouragement, because of our lack of faith, we would assume that God cannot be trusted, that he is no longer sovereign and that he will not lead us into the promises that he has given us. This cannot be farther from the truth. But like Israel, 
God expects us to trust his sovereignty and to obey his commands. So knowing this, what should our response be? Well, the first thing is to remember, read God's word and remember that God is God. He is sovereign and he will do what he says he can do because he is trustworthy and his word is trustworthy. Psalms 34, 8 tells us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see. How often do we consider what God has done for us? Back, as I, I said before, do we actually look at what God has done? And it says, blessed is the man, the second part of, of that psalm says, but blessed, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. But we must make sure that, like Judah, that we also act on God's word. So again, up until now, it seems that everything has been very well in the land of Israel as they seek to set out to take the land for which God has promised them. What we want to see, not so much as what Judah is doing, but what God is doing as we look at the progression into the rest of the passage. We must realize that God continues to display his trustworthiness by fulfilling his promise. However, in verse 21, we see the forward progress of the, uh, the conquest into the territory shift. There is a stark contrast between the actions of the initial con uh, conquest into the land and the actions of the remaining tribes who ultimately fall short short of God's requirement and do not obey God fully and settle the land to which they were promised. If we look into uh, verse 21, first of all, whenever you see a but in the Bible and it does, it is not uh, followed by but God or but the Lord, it doesn't normally work out well. There is normally something going on there that is probably not going to be good. Uh, as is the case here. Verse 21 said, But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem, for the Jebusites have, li have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Now, this may not seem like a big deal at the onset, but if we go back again to Numbers 33, what did God tell the Israelites to do when they took them of the land? He said, drive out all the inhabitants. Four things, uh, three uh, things I want you to see as we work from uh, verses 21 through 34 is, again, one, the Lord said, the tribes did not obey, and God did not provide. A contrast to what we see from the tribe of Judah. And again, we don't necessarily see the big deal in the Jebusites remaining in Jerusalem. But if I could paint a picture, if you look at the map, there is where Jerusalem was, was basically surrounded by the rest of the tribes of Israel. So the bottom line is you don't allow the enemy to sit up in your headquarters. That is one of the problems. But not only that, the question I have for you this morning is, are there any small sins that you let linger in your life? 
Are there any small sins that you let linger in your life? Are there, are there any areas where you say, this isn't that big a deal. I'm going to sit it over here for the moment and I will deal with it later. Or are those things that where you say, you know what, this isn't really bothering me right now. Um, I'm good with this. I can handle this. So I'm just going to let it sit here and I'll get back to it later. Are there any little foxes that are spoiling your relationship with God? In the Song of Solomon, uh, talking about uh, specifically their relationship with magic, says it's the little foxes that spoil the vine. The small things that we allow not to, that to allow to go uh, without correcting that get us in trouble. Those small sins that we allow to persist in our lives and we don't take care of them. And the thing we're going to see as we go forward is this becomes a very big problem, not just for Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, but also for the tribe, of, uh, for the nation of Israel. In verse 22, the tribe of Joshua, like Judah, takes action in doing what God says. At least they set out in the right direction. God says, go in and take the land. And the house of Judah it says the house of Joseph, sorry, not you, the house of Joseph went up uh, against Bethel. So Joseph's land is in Bethel. They go up against the people of Bethel, and it says the Lord is with them. However, there's a slight difference. When they go into the land, they don't fully obey what God says. If you go back with me into, uh, again, to Numbers 33, it says the Lord directs Moses Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you, will, you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. When God says all, there should be an understanding that God means all. I appreciate Mike emphasizing that this morning when he went through the scripture reading because that all is significant. And we forget that the sovereign God, a holy and just God, will hold us accountable when we do not fully follow his word. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines all as the whole, the total sum, the entire quantity of all things. So in not driving out all of the inhabitants uh, inside of Bethel uh, and also inside of Jerusalem, both, uh, both the tribe of Judah and the, the tribe of Joseph, they both did not fully obey God. But what was the fault of the tribe of Joseph? Well, if we look down, uh, down in verse 24, it says, And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. There's that word again. But they let the man and all of his family go. So we see that they were only partially obedient. God said, go in and possess the land and drive out all of the inhabitants. So they went in and they possessed the land, but they let the man and all of his family go. And you say, okay, but he helped them out. That's a good deal. That was their 
that was their agreement. But God also said, do not make any agreements with the inhabitants of the land. Verse 26 says, and the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called his name Luz. That is his name to this day. So when they let the man go, instead of destroying him, putting him to destruction like the Lord said, he went and basically rebuilt the city with another part, in another part of the land with another group of the inhabitants that were enemies that the Israelites were due to drive out. So we see that their problem is beginning to persist in Israel as they are disobedient to the Lord. But again, this is us, and we do not always do what the Lord tells us to do the way he tells us to do it, far more often than we would care to admit. As we go through uh, the remaining verses, they all start off in similar fashion. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants, and Ephraim, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants. And we see that this pattern of disobedience starts to flow through the entire, tri an entire nation of Israel. Now, again, in Judges 1, it doesn't tell us exactly why. You'll have to wait till next week to get that. Um, but spoiler alert, it's because of disobedience. Because they were not faithful to what God told them to do. And part of that starts with their, their decision not to fully drive out the inhabitants of the land to which God had given them. But more than that, if we look at verse 34, we see uh, a more, in, in my mind, a more crucial issue with Dan. The, Am the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. Hmm. So God said, go in and possess the land I have given to you. Go in and possess the land that I have given to you. But instead of Dan going into the land and possessing the land, he allowed the inhabitants to keep him from even entering into the land. So we see this progression of where Judah went in, God was with him, and he took the land. Benjamin went in, the land was taken, but he didn't drive out. The tribe of Joseph goes in, takes the land through making deals with the inhabitants of the land. The rest of the tribes don't drive out uh, the inhabitants. And then Dan doesn't even take possession of the land. In fact, you'll see that they, they go on and say that the Amorites persisted in dwelling in the mountains uh, in Mount Heres, in Ajalon, in Shiavim. Um, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them. We'll get to that in a second. But what we find out is not only did Dan not enter into their promised land, but they actually took up root in another territory that was not promised to them. So this is a big issue. Again, it doesn't look like a big issue now, but we will see it uh, as we go forward into um, the rest of the chapter. But the pressing question is, why didn't they drive out the inhabitants of the land? What was it that kept the remaining tribes from driving out the inhabitants? Judah drove out the inhabitants. Simeon drove out the inhabitants. They captured Jerusalem and 
turned it over to the, to Benjamin. Joseph went in and captured Bethel. Why were the other tribes not able to capture the land and drive out the inhabitants? Well, we go back to the second point, and that is a lack of confidence results in disobedience. It was not that they didn't understand what was told to them by Moses. It wasn't understanding. It wasn't that they did not understand when God, when God had Joseph reiterate and reconfirm with them. Their problem was that they lacked confidence. They became, they became more confident in their ability to settle and to dwell with the uh, inhabitants of the land than they did with their confidence and ability of God to fulfill his promises. This is a problem. This is not just the root of the problem for the remaining tribes or the problem for Israel, but is the same problem that we face on a regular basis. We get comfortable with our surroundings. There's a reason that God tells us to be world, but not of the world, that we are not to conform to the things the world does. We are to be holy as God is holy. However, when we seem to take things into our own hands and do things the way that we want to do those things, we do not, it does not work out well for us. How often do we disregard the direct commandments? How often have we ignored God's past goodness and mercies? How often do we settle for partial obedience as good enough? And the answer is way too often. We are far more like the tribes of Benjamin, Joseph, Zebulun, Asher, Naphtali, and Dan than we care to admit. Because in doing so, in allowing our little things to persist, we ultimately offer God disobedience. Again, so how should we respond to our tendency to be constantly disobedient to God to give him partial obedience? Well, first and foremost, we have to pray. In and of ourselves, we are not going to change. We have to ask God for clarity in his word, for discernment, and for wisdom. James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. If you're struggling with trusting God, I would encourage you to think about how he has been faithful in the past, to look to what his word says, look back in how God has always provided for his people. But more than that, look forward to Christ. Look to Jesus as our perfect example. If we are to obey God fully, must commit to his sovereignty. We have to be confident that he will do what he says he will do, that he knows what is best and seeks what is best for his people. When we assume partial obedience is sufficient, we have determined that we know better than God. Um, I can tell you that that obviously is not the case. We do not know. Ruth 11.6 says, And without is impossible to please God, because anyone who approaches him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. 
is in Christ. Christ fully trusted and obeyed God in his earthly ministry, even to death on the cross. When we go to God for help, we can be confident that he will stand on his word, that if we are obedient, he will reward us, and that he is still the sovereign, the sovereign Lord and our only Redeemer. Even still, today, we have the full compilation of the Bible. We have it in more languages, in more formats, and it's more availability than any other time in the Bible's existence. So again, I offer you a couple things in conclusion. Read the word. We can't obey God if we don't know his expectations. If we never take the time to read God's word and understand what he says, then how will we understand what God expects us to do and respond? Ask the Holy Spirit to show you God wants for guidance. And soon do we we seek for guidance and we expectation that he wants. Ask for discernment with expectation. And finally, ask God to give you the great desire to obey him. As I've said before, we in ourselves, because of our sinful nature, will not naturally obey God. We will not naturally seek to obey him. This is the problem that we constantly face. Israelites will constantly and only only plan to get out of it Jesus Christ. God's redemption for life. It wasn't explicitly stated this morning, but something that I think bears saying is that God is a holy God and he will not allow disobedience to go unpunished. We need to resolve within ourselves that we will serve God, that we will put our trust in him, not in our ambitions, not in our careers, not in our families, but we will trust in the Lord to redeem us, to forgive us, and to guide us in this life. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word, Father. We thank you, Father, that your word is trustworthy, that you are faithful to those who seek you, that you reward those who seek you and obey you, Father. We thank you for your word, Father, um, your word that guides us. We thank you for your spirit uh, that rings true in our ears and convicts us when we are wrong. Father, I pray that uh, somehow this message has touched the hearts of, of someone here that uh, that if they have been convicted by not fully obeying you, that they will resolve in their hearts to obey you more, Father, to read your word, to hear your word, and to take action on your word, Father, that as they take action, Father, that you would be true and you will fulfill your promises in your sovereign power and your ability to do so, Father. So I just thank you, Father, so much for this time. I thank you for your spirit, and I pray that everyone here uh, will be better uh, for 
resting and hearing your word than they were when they came in. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So now we are going to enter in.